Today, we're talking to David, founder and CEO of Flatfile, about the concept of rage design and harnessing discontent to build great products and workplace culture. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I like to always start with the origin story. Uh, how did you get into like technology as a whole? Yeah, um, I'm just like an obsessive person. And so when I find something I can do and enjoy doing, I tend to like lean into it. Um, and I you know, started super young. My dad had a business. He needed a website for it. And I really wanted to build it. Um, so he, my dad's business, and this is uh, sort of an aside, but he's a violin maker by trade, so nothing in tech. Um, and he ended up building a really large sort of distribution business around violins and stringed instruments in Canada. Um, so as a kid, grew up a family business and I wanted to do my part. I wanted to do something I, that I thought was interesting. So I learned how to build a website. Um, fast forward three years. It took me three years cause I rebuilt it three times. Uh, <laughs> learned how to code. I read at the time it was PHP. I read the entire PHP manual. Um, and I, by the time I was done with that, I knew how to build software. Um, and then much to his chagrin, I started building software for everybody else and fell in love with it. Nice. What was your first big, big project that like took off? First big project for a few years, I built a lot of side projects for, for, for different folks. And then I was 19 and I was like having dinner with a friend and I was they They were just, they worked at a large bank and they were telling me about this like project that had gone on for two years and they had just been told it was going to take another year. Um, it was like $4 million in the mud. And I was joking around and I was like, oh, pay me half a million dollars. So I'll do it in three months. And I got a call the next day and they were like, I told my boss about this and he wants to throw half a million dollars out there at the chance that we don't have to wait another year for this to be done. So I flew 10 of my friends into Alabama, believe it or not. And we lived in a house in Alabama for three months and we like built this like internal banking software for a major bank. And after that, uh, we got all the work we wanted. So that was like the first like big project that sort of kick, kickstarted the business part of this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Alabama's the, the next Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. I, I just no had a one. friend who lived there and he had a house and I was like, all right, we're, we're, we're going to go, we're going to go live there for a while. <laughs> so you, Canada, Birmingham, where are you at now? Uh, I now live actually outside of Washington, D.C. via Denver. Spent 10 years in Denver, um, but recently moved out to to Baltimore area. Um, my wife has horses, uh, so we have 10 acres. Um, and I am almost finished putting the finishing touches on my my office, which is like the upstairs of this like horse barn. Now, that might sound insane, but if you know thoroughbred folks, their barns are better than houses. They're beautiful. <laughs> They're beautiful. They, they call them barn yeah. dominiums. People barn actually yes. intentionally build barn dominiums that yes. are like barn houses. For now. the people that full-time take care of these yeah. horses. Yeah. So I'm turning that into this beautiful like home office. Um, so that's been a, a, a fun project. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you're building this big office. Do you have an office for your team in, in the town or no? No, so we're fully distributed. We were from day one. This is pre-pandemic. Um, and obviously when the pandemic started, that felt serendipitous. Um, but, you know, both myself and my co-founder, we've worked remote quite a bit in our careers. Um, and so we, we, we lived in different cities. So the first decision was like, hey, do we like move together to like build this company or do we go remote? And if we go remote, like, should we be remote? 
And the way we sort of tested this was like, it was sort of like what's good for the gander is good for the goose. Like it's like if we can collaborate well as founders remotely, then we're sort of like the weather vane for whether or not like our culture is functioning for the team. Um, so yeah, we were remote since day one. Uh, we have, you know, uh, almost 100 employees all remote around US, Canada and South America. And this is an interesting point on this. We actually... One of the biggest challenges with remote is finding the right place to work when you're remote. So yeah, I'm working at my home office, but we actually pay $10,000 to every employee to, well, we pay $10,000 to help people renovate a home office. So we actually have a designer on retainer. They'll pick a room in your house. We'll figure out how to make it like the coolest home office ever. Can I? That's like the remote perfect. Where's the application (laughs) button? It's on the website. There you go. Do you know if it's like forward slash careers or when you go to the flat file website, it's just flatfile.com? It's probably slash careers or jobs or something like that. But But it's clear in the. It's clear. You guys are hiring, basically. We are, yes. uh, We're scaling up our engineering team. um, And uh, it's, yeah. We, we, a we we you know think remote is a great way f- to build and collaborate and sort of get that space to step away and focus. Um, one of the hard things with remote though is like coming back and figuring out how to ideate together. So there's I feel like ideation remote is always a challenge. Um, I think it's something we're still solving for. We do we do interesting things like we'll fly people together to work together for a few days in an area in front of a whiteboard. Um, one of the things we do try to avoid is actually like having scheduled meetings. It's like kind of counterintuitive, but like the less people like spend time in meetings, the more time they spend sort of ad hoc collaborating and engaging in ways that sort of drive things forward. Yeah, it's amazing when I talk with, you know, whether it's customers or just other people, I would say our company culture is a lot like what you just described. And then I'll talk with somebody else who's like chaining meetings back to back five days a week, eight hours a day. And I'm like, that's that's crazy. When's your when's your time? When's your space to be curious and explore and and figure out the next thing? Especially for builders, I think you know for for you know people working with customers or supporting or sales, there's a lot of meetings in the yeah. in their world. Um, but for builders, a lot of this is like you know taking time to think and be creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was specifically talking about like internal meetings, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. some companies get crazy with them. Yeah. Far, far too many. It, it's. It, I think there's now been actually a, a lot of uh, inks spilled on this, but like I think when you know, a lot of companies went remote, you just like take, you just fill everybody's calendars with meetings to make sure you have these check-ins. You're like, well, I can't, like, I'm not sitting next to you anymore. So here's a meeting for this and a meeting for that. And very quickly people realized, hey, you can easily take up 30, 40% of your operating time yeah. in meetings if you're not careful. Um, so there's now been, a, I think, a lot of better hygiene coming out around sort of remote culture. Yeah. And for a while there, it was like, chaotically bad. Yeah, the the reaction to not knowing how to measure it is to try to jump in there and control it. Yeah. Right? So, we worked really hard. I had always done remote teams until this company mm-hmm. and we started it in Florida. Pandemic happened, then we grew quickly cuz I was telling you earlier mm-hmm. we changed the business model. So, we kind of grew quickly and we hired wherever and it just scattered us across the US. And then we made a very conscious decision to get rid of the office and be fully remote because you can't do the second class citizen thing. It just, yeah. it just doesn't work out. And um, it becomes like a they, them, you know, deal where you yeah. have two different camps, the people who are in office, people who aren't in office. Yeah. So we went fully remote and we've been doing fully remote with this company for about three years now. And, and we focused a lot on just figuring out like the KPIs, like what are the two or three things a position, like a role can focus on that that ultimately generates revenue or supports yeah. that somehow. I think there's a, a, a profile of person that works really well remote as well. And this yeah. is 
if you know what success looks like and you have like the intrinsic motivation to pursue it, like that's great. Cause like you're not going to have anybody sort of like banging on your shoulder to like keep you on track and, and trying to do it, I think remote is ultimately very hard. Um, so that's one thing we filter for at flat file. It's like just people with like intrinsic motivation, people who are like able to self-manage their time. Cause then it makes it easy, right? Like here's the problem, here's what we need to solve. And you're going to be held accountable to solving it. So like figure it out, right? Pull yeah. people in, et cetera. And that, I think that's an interesting part that people don't really talk about remote. It's not just about like, hey, you know, business-wise are we set up? It's like, is the team the right team to operate in this way? Yeah. Josh is sitting over there like, does he sound like me or what? <laughs> like, it sounds like everything I'm hearing out of your mouth, I'm like, this is exactly... You're like, oh no, we agree too much. We're not going to have anything interesting no, to fight about on this podcast. Well, I think your topic, one of your main topics is like rage design, right? Is that correct? Did it you have is. like a rage design um, topic? It, that, that came about in the weirdest way. Um, after my Series A, I was doing a uh, reporter interview and they were asking me like why I started Flatfile. And I think yeah, we get there in the journey, but... I, I was like, look, I, how many times do you have to build a CSV importer before you get like, you, you're fed up with it? And then for me, apparently it was like 13. Yeah. Um, but you know, company after company, right? You have to go solve, you solve the same problem of customers being able to import data into that product. And I've been doing SaaS and almost every SaaS product is an empty box, right? Waiting for customers to bring something to it, right? A CRM or a HR, HR product or whatever it is you're building, right? You're trying to optimize some aspect of the business. But the first thing is like, people have to bring their data. And every company always gets to this place where you're, you're like, oh, we got to stop building the things that we wanted to build and build this like customer-facing ETL experience. And I was like, man, I was just so angry that like I couldn't just go find something and use it. I had to stop our roadmap and spend three months building this that I spent like the next two weekends rage designing this solution. And then the next day the headline was like, founder rage designs, like raised $50 million to rage design a product or whatever like that. But it turned into culture um, at Flatfile. And I think that's like, uh, I, was, I was talking to somebody about this recently, but I think this like active discontent is something that we don't like really value enough in business. It's like the unhappy people are oftentimes like given the ability to be active about it can be the best innovators. And so I've, I found that like discontent is like an, an, it is a feature, not a bug in a lot of areas, as long as like you lean into it. And so like looking at the things that people are unhappy about can tell you a lot more about like what they're going to do and spend their time on than things that they're happy about. Well, we spend money to solve problems. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I apparently care a lot about CSV files, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, or really the 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 ish. I was trying to actually understand sort of like why there's like a series of things I've cared about through my career, and it comes to like like high like high delta problems in innovation, right? you're innovating and solving, you know, this business problem and you've got this like, you know, billion dollars of investment here, but somehow like there's a massive delta between that and the person like emailing over a spreadsheet full of data, right? Like we haven't innovated in this area, but there's so much innovation here. And so as the delta grows, the costs and friction start really materializing and slowing businesses down. And there's like so many areas in the world where like there's like these like massive deltas in innovation and all of them keep me up at night. This is the one that like, I think is fundamental to um, unlocking most of the future innovation. That like, sounds like a founder thing to say. I know like, oh, my company's like, unlocking the future of innovation. But like, dude, I was talking with this founder recently and their company is like an AI product that analyzes cancer research data. So it'll take like seven years of cancer research and MRIs and metadata. 
and they'll plug it into their software and it can basically early detect cancer seven years, five years before doctors can. Like it, it, it's pretty innovative AI, but it takes them a year to clean up the spreadsheets in order to run the analysis on the metadata. And if that doesn't like, it's like, we're spending a year trying to clean up data just so that we can access this innovation. Sure, I don't care if you're spending a year adopting a new HR platform, but innovation, like, you know, it, it, innovation is across all frontiers, whether that be technology and HR or innovation in, in sciences and any sort of fundamental problem like this where data, for us, data exchange, right, is something that is like worth caring about because they holds the world back. Would your product be something that could help them? Yeah, so <laughs> Flatfile is focused on that sort of problem of exchanging data. And if you think of ETL historically as a world where you have sort of data in one shape over here, you need rules, and you can move the data from that shape into an, another system. Flatfile lives in a world of what we call high-variance ETL, where every source is likely to be different, right? Every customer, every vendor is bringing something different. So what you have to do is take every ETL problem and move that to move the, 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 the problem-solving part of it to the front of the funnel, right? The point of variance, because that's the only way it can scale. We basically simplified ETL in a way where end users providing data, anybody who's providing data that's messy can clean it up like as part of providing that data. So now your 1,000 customers or your you know, 500 hospitals, they can you know, basically hand you clean data. That's pretty neat, because yeah. when you were talking about it at first, me as my developer background, I was like, okay, so it's a mapping tool. The, there you, you go. Know, and yeah. then, so, but apparently, it's a lot more than that. Well, when you think about the like fundamental problem, right? It's like schema resolution, right? Between point A and point B, you're giving me data. I know it has the data I need in it, but it's just in a completely different shape. Now, that shape might be as simple as you named your field F name, and I need full name. But it might also be the fact that like your data is in five thousand PDF files, and I need it in a database, right? And so, there's a whole world of sort of layers of extraction and schema resolution that have to happen. At the end of the day, it comes down to, hey, you handed me something that's called you know F name. Is it full name or is it first name? And Flatfile sees billions of those decisions every year. So we're able to predict with an extreme level of accuracy exactly what you mean. It's like, we know it's a first name because it looks like a first name. Um, so you start being able to automate that and then reserving just the decisions for the user that are essential for them to answer. That starts making it, you know, taking away oftentimes, you know, thousands of hours of work in a data exchange. So you can sit in between... Any data source? Like, can you sit, like, if I have APIs, like, for example, I did real estate software for a while, yeah. and they had this thing called RETS, which is Real Estate Transaction Standard. Yep. The funny thing about it is every single board, and there's 900 of them in the U.S., uh, interpreted the standard differently, which yep. completely defeated the purpose of the standards. Yep. So sometimes it would be called BDRM for bedroom, sometimes yep. it would be BD, sometimes it would yep. be beds, yep. you know, and so you've got this across, you know, 900 different sources, you're trying to aggregate all of them, and that was an interface through, like, an API, yep. right? Would you guys sit in there at all or no? Yeah, you can certainly sort of plug in anything on, on the left side and anything on the right side. Our sort of specialty is focusing on resolving the differences between those two things. Usually if there's an API or existing connector for it, right, that's not where we're specializing. We focus primarily on transactional data where your format of this is, is going to be extremely different. Some of that is API-based. Um, but you see this the most in spreadsheets or CSV files, right? Like, hey, here's my dump of data. It's like, oh, we have no idea what we're about to find in here. But every what we've done is create sort of experiences where, you know, in that example of BDR versus bedroom, right, you can easily sort of make that decision in the UI and you don't have to be technical for it. 
And so as a result, we get to learn from subject matter experts. Like you're the real estate person importing this data. You just told us now that this means this, and we're gonna see a hundred more of you do this. And after that, we're gonna be able to know everything about real estate data that we possibly could want to in order to actually automate the, the transformation of the business side of this. Okay, so you're organizing your learnings based off of some data they give you and yep. you're asking them about the data they're importing. Yeah, and you know the, the, the mass product of that is something that would take you hours or weeks of manual cleanup in a spreadsheet can now be done in seconds, right? Yeah. Drop a file, done. Connect an API, done. And what's uh, this is actually sort of coming full circle to sort of maybe the, like the, the rage design problem. Developers oftentimes are given a, a business problem. Let's say in this case, right, we're trying to import you know a lot of customer data, right? But before it gets to the developer, right, the business usually tries everything else, right? There, you know, supports doing it by hand, right? Like, and by the time it gets to the developer, it's now sort of reached like business critical priority because you know building a solution takes time and it's expensive. So usually by the time some one of these things sort of gets to a developer, it's we've already tried everything else. And so developers are oftentimes put in a position where they have to like solve something relatively quickly because it's important to the business and you can do it a lot of different ways. And for us, and I think you know, for companies like Stripe, you are the way the developer can sort of win, right? So hey, here's a tool that helps you get to your objective as quickly as possible. And that's actually been interesting for us from a business learning perspective where, you know, early on we were like the import button. So if you're a SaaS application and you want to add your import contacts button in there, we've got you. Now that's a like relatively narrow application of this problem. As we've grown now, we've become a platform where as a developer, you can take all the building blocks and build incredibly comprehensive workflows. So, you know, if you need a sign-off process from a technical stakeholder, or if you need a compliance review in there, you can do that all with Flatfile. So we've opened this up to let you implement us in sort of any workflow. Yes, rather than me like making my own service to operate the rules yep. and just using an import solution and then yep. putting rules in, I can put the rules in the, you put in the cloud, what do you do? Yeah, so I mean, you can, like I like the Stripe comparison. We we like describe file files and I was like Stripe for like data import. Mm -hmm. um, it's got all the APIs. You you describe your destination structure, right? Your API, and then we'll take care of getting data into it. Whether that's a CSV file or an Excel file or a pile of PDFs, we'll you know present the UI. Oh, modules. you take care of everything. Everything. So any sort of unstructured data into like ultimately into like that that target format. So yeah, and and the big problem there is UI, right? It's like APIs can do a certain amount, but at some point you need the customer or the person uploading the data to make some decisions about it, right? Confirm, sign off, that, like yes, this is the right financial metric to be using here, because getting it wrong can sometimes have massive consequences for the, the businesses. Um, so we've created like UI experiences that allow these these people to like answer all those questions, um, and you can put that in your product or implement it in your flows. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I dude, I I, <laughs> I love it. I, I could not be having more fun uh, building a company here. It's just so so broadly up, up, up applicable. Do you guys think you're outgrowing your name? Flatfile? No, yeah. actually. I think um, I think the future of data exchange is CSV. Um, and that's probably like the craziest thing to hear. But I think like CSV is interesting, right? It is actually a really bad format, and it's because it actually has no standard. CSV just emerged, and eventually, I, I know the guy who like wrote out the RFC, and he just like documented what was currently generally accepted as CSV. But CSV like destroys data when you serialize it, right? Like everything's a string, and so you know trying to get data back out of it requires some judgment. So I think there's iterations on CSV to be done on the format, and we're we're about to launch CSV two, which is like a, a stricter format of CSV that means you can sort of serialize data without any loss. 
And with that, that actually creates the most portable sort of format for data exchange. It's interesting. It's the most ubiquitous exchange format in data, right? Like you, you, if I ask you for a, a random parquet format, you're not going to know what I need. Uh, you're, the average person is not going to know what I'm asking for. But if I ask for a CSV file, somebody's going to be like, oh yeah, I can, I can get you that from Excel. Yeah. So I think everything eventually getting into sort of a common exchange format is, is pretty important. So what we do on our end is we'll take your Excel file, convert it to CSV or like our version of CSV. We'll take your PDFs, convert it into structured format. That's the first layer. And then from there, we pick up and sort of normalize schemas. So CSV is the future. You heard it here first. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned flat file, flat data structure. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I don't really understand that a whole lot. Can you tell me like an example of a flat data structure, like what it is and then a, a data structure that's not flat? Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't come up with the word flat file. Um, that's existed for a long time, generally to describe sort of CSV or fixed width format structures. And it's just, you know, can you put your data set into a file? And if so, that was described broadly as flat file. Okay. Um, the other way of thinking about it is like, there's like one row per record and then sort of all of your attributes are columns-ish. Yeah. Fixed width sort of breaks away from that and they try to like put more dimension into a single row. But, you know, broadly you can think of it as like serialized file formats. Okay. Yeah. And that's how you came up with the name. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, the domain was available and I was like, cool. Flat it was? Flatfile.com? <laughs> well, not .com. That's another oh, okay. story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, um, a, that's an expensive purchase <laughs> later on. Right? .io was available. Um, .com I got from a, a, a welding factory outside of um, New Jersey and they made these old flat file cabinets and they're, uh, they're filing cabinets that take uh, blueprint plans. And uh, he did not, yeah, he, he was like, you want my, sorry, you want my domain, not my entire company? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, just the domain. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, what did he change to like flat file something else? Com? I don't know. I don't think he even realized he had a website. Um, so it was, um, yeah, that was, it, do, domain purchases always have the wildest stories behind them. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have some and I, I can't share them on air, but I can share them off air. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I said earlier, I was like, I'm a bit of an obsessive person. And so like, this is a problem I started obsessing about. And then like, it's easy to look at this and go, oh, interesting. This is like a relatively boring business problem. But um, I was describing it recently to someone, you know, like Moore's law, right? Moore's law is an incredibly boring problem, right? Can we reduce the space between transistors on a chip by another like nanometer or whatever it is, right? Like, and can we do that consistently? Like year over year over year. And that like, so the people solving that problem have led to almost every aspect of innovation that we have, right? Like the people working on like this core fundamental thing, I just like fall in love with fundamental problems, right? Things that like are underlying every aspect of innovation. And this is one of those things, right? Like you, you, you can't exchange data at this point in business. You can't do business. And that's another kind of crazy thing is I was talking to this grocery store owner in like Northern Maine and he get, they're like a farm to table grocery store. Like they get all their stuff from local farmers. They have a data ops person that works with the farmers to like get all of their data on like the produce that's available. That person has a full-time job. Like there is no area of doing business that you can't do without exchanging data anymore. And like, you know, 20 years ago, that could be a handshake and, you know, like, and I know Joe, but now it's just, you got to solve this problem for us to keep innovating. What's next for Flatfile? 
Yeah, I mean, like going deeper and deeper on this problem, like, you know, fast forward a, f- a few years, our objective here is to make almost any aspect of sort of data exchange instantaneous. Um, I described it early on as like the Tesla the Tesla opportunity of, of ETL, because you get to watch people actually solve these problems, unlike every other aspect of ETL, where you have, you know, data engineers who know how to, you know, clean things up, but they don't know anything about the data itself. And so by putting all the, the problem solving in front of the customers or the vendors, you actually get business information from what the, the decisions they're making. So you're gonna turn that into something that basically makes data exchange completely automated and move on to the next problem in that in that area. You know, the ability to go the, the ability to go deep on this is extremely high, right? Like it's like, hey, we've got, you know, Excel spreadsheets, but we've got, you know, this in banking, the 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 banking industry, we've got it in the insurance industry, and then also you know, you list a list a thousand miles long of every industry that has something like this. So, yeah, we're we're here to build one of the largest companies in the world, just solving this fundamental problem better and better every day. Yeah, and that's like the people we hire are people who like also obsess about this and just like want to like really get good at this user experience around data exchange. Well, it's a very first principles like approach. Oh, you got you got my soapbox or uh, Elon Musk soapbox yeah. or whatever. <laughs> are, are a fan or not fan of of, of first principles of, of uh, Musk? Uh, of Musk. Oh. <laughs> oh, this is a tough time to ask that question. No, I'm a fan, Look, but I, yeah. I'm a fan of blasphemy, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a less controversial. Visit. No, <laughs> explain this to me. <laughs> well. Okay, I, I grew up hyper-religious, um, and this is an interesting uh, uh, point to this, but I, I, I remember my family, like, being shunned from, like, the church for, like, some religious decision, and, like, I, it, it was, it's, it's intriguing in that, like, I think there's ways that you, like, get to, like, a commonly held set of beliefs on, like, you know, in this case, let's call it like the church of like business operating principles, right? And then like breaking out of that is blasphemy, right? And and I think I think that you know blasphemy is sometimes good, sometimes bad. But what it says is like you're you're definitely like breaking the narrative a lot. Um, I think that's how you learn, right? We do this in engineering constantly. We do this in, as kids. My kids, do yeah, it. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like breaking things is how you learn. And what's interesting is like in these fundamentals about how the world operates and how business should operate and how you make money and, and like how you scale things, there's commonly accepted principles of like what is good and what you should do and what makes things work. And I think we don't break those things often enough to learn if they're still true, right? The world has changed a lot. And so, you know, I you can go read a hundred books on business leadership and you'll get a relatively homogenous set of advice. And I think that's concerning, right? Like. I think I think as a world we should break things more often. And you know, the problem with that is sometimes there's negative effects of breaking those things. But yeah. I like blasphemy. So <laughs> yeah, well, you gotta try new things and you gotta explore. I'm yeah. a very curious person, and I I think one of the I would actually say it's almost equally a weakness and a strength is my inability to see some of those walls. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because you know, socially, it, it sounds cool. Like, oh, I'm an innovator. Well, it's like I just can't see some of these yeah. common things, or at least for some reason, I don't have this emotional connection to respect them. Like, yeah. and it's not that I want to go against it necessarily or or for it, but it's just I don't know. I just kind of do what I want to do. Yeah. I do what makes sense, and that's yeah, hard. And, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, the the narrative violations are oftentimes where like innovation really starts happening, right? Like there's commonly held beliefs of like this is how things work and should work, and then somebody 
changes the rules, right? Like, hey, this is how taxis work. Well, somebody changed the rules, right? Like big narrative violation and we have a completely new world we live in. I think there's a lot to innovate in in relation to business management and building companies. And I think as startup founders, we get to do that a lot, right? There's very few rules that are applied when you're 15 people or 30 people. And especially with the way sort of venture capital works, there's oftentimes a lot of freedom given to like how you want to build this. What's interesting is in large companies that almost always goes away, right? Like there's like, you you probably bring in like a management consulting company to any, you know, 15,000 employee company and they know how to run it. And Soul crushers. <laughs> but like they're, you know, commonly accepted principles. This is actually, uh, I, we can get into this here. Um, I, I'm trying to hire a VPE right now. And like one of the things that I refuse to accept is the like VPE who doesn't build things. Mm-hmm. Like there's this like, there's, and I've worked for a bunch of them and this is like no, no, <laughs> no, no, no knock on it. But like, bi- Building is the most important part of engineering. Like managing the engineering team is, I, I, I get it's important, but I, I, I think like being able to build and create and be a craftsperson alongside the engineers garnishes a level of respect for the direction, the decisions and the trade-offs that are being made that you don't get from someone who's sort of like living behind a spreadsheet, mostly doing recruiting, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm trying to hire for this sort of like VPE CTO hybrid where the, like you're the best engineer on the team, but you're able to like scale this up to the next like 500 engineers. And it's in, like the uh, recruiting firm on this. And it's like a relatively narrow set of criteria because oftentimes people actually like optimize relatively early on for a management Path or a building path. At Flatfile, I have this rule on the on the on the engineering team that like everybody on that team builds, right? So we don't have purely administrative roles. We don't have product managers, right? Like we have tech leads who can sort of make product trade-off decisions. Even the sort of operational, I have a build ops person who like is responsible for keeping sort of the system flowing, but he also delivers features. I think that's important where like everybody's able to sort of get their hands on the problem in the business and build. And, you know, for for an executive, especially if there's a problem here, my expectation is that you can never like sort of identify it as like a people problem. Like I don't have the right person here. I'm going to go hire another person. It's like, well, if you don't have the right person here, solve it yourself and then go hire the right person. Like we're, we're too early as a business to like make this like a hiring thing or a process uh, change thing. Like everything has to be solved by building. So like everybody builds as a culture is probably because I'm like a technical CEO, but it it's in wonders. And I think we've made some missteps along the way. We started building a little too much process early on. I know actually, I think in your book, you talk about like scaling too fast yeah. um, a bit, but uh, we definitely did that early on. You know, raise a lot of capital. You're like, all right, we need to scale this up. We get a bunch of managers in place. And before you know it, like everything grinds to a halt. And so we did a bit of reset where we like got back to this like core culture of building. And in like two months, we built more than we built in, two, in like a year just by shifting this like mindset back to this like active building mindset. What size is the engineering team currently if you're sharing that publicly? Yeah, we're about yeah. 20 people right now. Okay. Um, so yeah, 20, 25 people and scaling it up pretty significantly. Okay. Yeah, so you're really early in engineering team size. Yeah. When you said 100, I thought like, at first I thought, oh, he has 100 whole, engineers, whole, but it's not the whole, whole company. company no, has no, re- relative, relatively early, early there. But I, I was at this summit for Growth Stage Founders a couple of weeks ago in Lisbon, and we were talking about this and I was, if you ask someone who's like built a company up to like 500 employees and they're like a technical founder and you ask them like how they've maintained the pace of execution, you get this like thousand yard stare. And they're like, oh man, I just like, it just, 
you can't, you can't like, it just eventually like slows down. You can't solve it, et cetera. Maybe coming back to this question about Elon Musk, maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe you can be a big company and you can execute quickly and you can sort of make fast decisions like at sort of close to the metal. And so, but what's interesting is I think a lot of founders actually give up on that. You're like, you know that you can move quickly, you know you make these decisions, but you actually lose the ability to expect that from your team. And that's one thing that I refuse to like allow myself to do is like, if I would expect this from myself, then you better be better at it than me. Like, I'm not going to like give you the disrespect of thinking that I could do it and you can't. And so like, this is like actually like true of executives and all the way down is that like, you're hired because you're really good at this thing, right? Like, like if you're going to be the engineering leader at Flatfile, you should be the best engineer. Like you should be like able to solve these technical problems. You should absolutely be able to sort of sit down in any of these architecture conversations and contribute and help make the decision and know when the decision's bad and be able to like be part of that conversation. I think that's like a very like controversial like position, but no, man, um, I think it works. Uh, it's hard to find that person. It is. I've been uh, interviewing for this role for a few months now, um, gotten close, but I think, it, oh, I had this, okay. I actually think this person exists more than you think. Because if you like talk to engineering leaders and you're like, what like don't you like about your current role? When I, back to this point of like active dissatisfaction or discontent, when I hear like, man, like I feel like we've just gotten like super process oriented and like everything's sort of like checking in box and there's nothing to innovate on anymore. And I want to like go solve problems again. That's a feature, right? Like, and I think those, those, People have oftentimes sort of optimized for the career opportunities that are available for them. But like if you're a builder at heart and then you've sort of like lost the ability to like sort of create and build because that's just not how business works. I think those people actually like are very much exist. And they're the people that I'm really connecting sort of and thinking about this leadership role. Yeah, no, they definitely exist. They're rare, special people though. Yeah, I, I don't think they're super, I mean, look, I think the narrative that, there are these engineers out there who want to get back to getting things done. I think that's super common. I don't know how many people there are that want... I'm thinking in my own personal Rolodex right now. Yeah. Like I know a couple <laughs> of these people. The problem is the people that I know that are really good at it, yeah. they've built companies successfully, sold them off, and they have a bunch of money, and they're kind of like hanging out right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I should tell them, like introduce them or something. But it takes a while for them to, to yeah. get bored and then... Yeah, I mean, like, I think boredom comes from, like, not being able to apply everything that you, yeah. or, like, all of your skills against the problem. And if you say, like, hey, like, I know you spent 15 years as one of the best engineers, and now, but now all you do is, like, review performance review, re review performance reports and, like, sign off on the next quarter's agenda. And I'm not, I'm, I'm now being somewhat dismissive of the hard work VPs of engineering do. But, um, no, I think it's, like, you need to feel, like, if you have the skill, like, you're applying it against the problem. And, and so like, I, I've had some incredibly exciting conversations with leaders where they've gotten the chance to do both, but they've not gotten the chance to do them together. Uh, that is the company I want to build. And so I actually have this all the way through. We have no middle managers within engineering. It's, you know, small teams with tech leads and those tech leads report up to like me at this point, but, um, you know, this future engineering leader. And you're just going to roll with that until you can't. I hope we can roll with it indefinitely. And there's some, there's, there's some evidence that you can, right? There's, you know, companies who have tried this and done this quite, quite a, uh, tried this now. And I, I think like jury's still out on how effective it is. But what I don't ever want to become is that like CEO, you know, 
three years from now with a thousand employees where you ask me and I'm like, don't make me talk about it, right? Like we haven't been able to ship anything meaningful in six months because like of this like process that everything grinds through. I don't think you'll let that happen. (laughs) I'm not the type of person to let that happen. It's amazing how often it happens. I mean, yeah, I think you've gotten in to fix some of these things, but like amazing how often it happens, man. People start scaling and just you stop shipping. I guess what I wanted to say earlier was that I agree with you when that person exists. The the thing that was sort of bothering me that I'm trying to articulate now is uh, take away engineering entirely. Yeah. The human that can sit there and and decide that, hey, I'm going to run this, like Elon Musk just yeah. walked into Twitter and he's like, yeah. this is what we're doing. This yeah. is how, that person is fairly rare. Uh, yeah. I, I try to hire people like that all the time um, at, yeah. at our company because I'd say 80 plus percent of the workforce is like, tell me what to do. So I think this comes back to sort of like who you hire at a company like this or at sort of any company where you want this to be the culture. I think that is a very hard, like a remote, we're like, hey, we want people who are able to sort of manage their own time, not have to be told what to do. You're like what, one step in the right direction there. But then when it comes to, you're like, hey, we're going to cut out the like management layer as much as we can, then you have to have people that are like able to make decisions and be comfortable being wrong because like that's, the, and that's, that's a skill that people have to learn, right? Hey, I'm, that's a maturity thing in life. You have yeah, to yeah. wait for people to hit that stage. So what's interesting is I think it it comes down to like the framework of accountability, right? So um, traditional accountability sort of matrices within an org are built sort of optimizing for the mean for the most part, right? Like, hey, like how do we get the average person in the business to perform? And then managers are there to like sort of like get the low performers up to the mean. But like a manager's job is rarely set up in a way where they can like make everybody a top performer, right? There's almost like a competitive aspect of that sort of implicitly in there. You can only have like a few top performers. And I I know there's a lot of management practices that have evolved to try and optimize more for that. But I think the thing that gets there the fastest, and I think this is something that's really changed things at FlatFile meaningfully, is being able to hold individuals accountable for outcomes versus like sort of collective organizations. And that requires the ability for that that individual sort of in leadership to actually do the thing that you're asking them or their team to do, right? If your only job is to manage the outcome, then that's a very different type of management than if you know exactly how this sort of thing is built, how it can be crafted, how people make the trade-offs, et cetera. The number of times I think as leaders, we've gotten into sort of a retro, we find out somewhere in there a mistake was made. It was because like communication was poor and the manager wasn't like sure why we were making this trade-off, et cetera it is extremely high, right? And that like ability for decisions to be made by people who understand the problems that they're dealing with, I think is critical to like pace and sort of accountability in the business. I do not believe it is necessary for there to be purely like middle management within most build functions. And I think there's people who swear by this and it's like everybody who leads has to be able to do the thing that they're leading. I that's that's how I think about like leadership in engineering at Flatfile. If you're if you're owning the thing, if you're making the decisions about it, you better be able to tell me everything about that decision. And if you're managing the execution, you also have to be doing that. And that's where the like sort of management layer starts getting messy oftentimes you start scanning these teams where the people sort of managing the execution of it aren't necessarily the people who really know how to do it. Yeah, and that's almost Far, so far from reality in my life, it's hard for me to understand because like, I I don't 
I guess my company is smaller, yeah. right? And so I don't run into it and I haven't worked at a larger company. I believe you when you tell me that these people exist. Oh, <laughs> the people who... <laughs> Yeah. No, the, no, the uh, people who... Well, we'll know, are, right? There's a lot of people listening to this podcast. The question is, does anybody, as anybody who's like built the engineering org, like believe in this world where like everybody, the entire tree in the engineering org can be builders or is yeah. it absolutely necessary to end up with this sort of management layer that starts optimizing? No, it's hard for, for me to believe yeah. the management layer that doesn't know how to do the work. Because oh, interesting. That's what I'm saying. I'm on, I'm on that side of the fence because right. I'm like... All right, if I'm going to go, let's say that uh, you pay me and I'm going to go work at a biotech company and manage scientists because you like my podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> Job offers to Joel at Job Modern <laughs> <laughs> And I go to that biotech company and I run a team of scientists that are trying to achieve this result of some blood yeah. thinner drug or whatever, right? What? How on earth am I going to do this? How am I going to have confidence in what's yeah. going on? How am I going to be able to... Uh, pull people out that are mm-hmm. incompetent or that don't have the skill set that we need. H- how can you do that effectively? And the answer is you can't really do it effectively. You can do it very inefficiently, yeah. right? Where you yeah. have a bunch of bloat, but I, yeah. I would never run my company like that. I hope I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because I think like, A, this sort of comes to some of the impact of venture capital on on like companies that, you know, Grow from five people to five thousand people in just a few years. Um, you know, we have examples of these companies who've literally gone from like fifty to a thousand in like nine months. Yeah, and you're like, like the only way you could possibly effectively do that is if everybody's sort of like operating their world like the original startup, right? Like where like decisions are being made ridiculously close to the metal and that's chaos. That is pure chaos. And so many business systems are designed to actually avoid chaos and thereby, right, start like optimizing for process and slowing things down because you have to make sense of them. And I think like chaos is mostly a feature. Um, There's uh, this example that I learn from this one like engineering leader. And he's like, there's like two ways you can build an org. You can build an org as a cathedral or you can build an org as a bazaar. And I'm like, I'm the bazaar guy, right? It's noisy. It's a little bit smelly. There's like three different vendors selling the same thing. Everyone's but guess making what, deals. Right? Yeah. yeah it, guess what? Like things are getting done there, right? Like, and they like change shape every day and you can sort of ship, well, apply this to engineering, right? You can ship a lot of things quickly. And yes, there's some chaos that comes with it, but like your pace of innovation is, is so much higher than if you treat it much more like a cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I just I'm a I'm a big fan of you know because I told you my background software yeah. engineering yeah. and w- I'm just thinking through all the times where I was running the team because so while I haven't worked at a large company three separate times I've gotten um, f- gone from myself as a yeah. sole engineer to building some basic variation of it mm-hmm. um, or proof of concept to building a team and through it becoming teams of teams mm-hmm. and the entire time like I I never ever I've never ever hired a, a manager that's not at least like coaching the engine, they might not be responsible for features. I- I'll give you that because I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> There's been times that they're not responsible for features, but they are 100% involved in code yeah. reviews yeah. and coaching the, the people on code structure yeah. and in best practices and things like that. And there's there's always one rule. 
when I hire these people, they have to be better than me. Yeah, I only hire yeah. engineers that are better than me. Yeah, and so yeah. that's that's my that's my rule. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, I think it's good. I think like uh, the can, the question is, can you like play that out across the entire org structure as you grow? Like everybody generally agrees you can do it early. Yeah, right? you can because, do it like, twenty. Yeah, two, three best engineers end up leading the team, etc. But at some point, right, like this seems to fall apart for everybody. And eventually, like you get to these, and as a consultant, I'm sure you've you've joined companies where you're like, we spent three months shipping a button. Yeah, how did that happen? And you like get into it, and it's like somewhere there was Scrum run every day on that button, right? Like yeah. there was a process, there was a system in place, and we shipped a button in three months, right? Like, and that that can happen, and it happens a lot a lot. And I think you know, I think it's actually very hard to prevent against that, based off of just yeah, what what we see and sort of how a lot of these companies have been able to scale. Do you think tech coming out that makes it easier, like uh, launch darkly? There, there are companies that does like feature flagging, yeah. but they do it like on a whole other level. A lot of people roll it themselves, mm-hmm. right? But uh, I got to talk with them a couple times nice. and uh, see what they were doing, and I thought it was was pretty interesting. But um, do you think that the technology of you know, like them taking it from a GitHub project that some people like know about, and mm-hmm. and, and then making it into like sort of a, a, a business product, and then them teaching the businesses and all yeah. of that. Do you think that's affecting our ability to get stuff shipped? I, I mean, I think she's built an incredible company there, um, uh, trying to like with that as the core ROI, right? Like you can build faster, iterate faster, you know, give teams the ability to move sort of independently while reducing risk for the business. To the extent that there's operational solutions, I think that we we will continue seeing innovation there. You know, for me as as a CEO trying to like build a company from scratch and trying to avoid these problems, it's it primarily has to be a cultural solution because like operations will will like grow as the company grows, but hopefully in as in as light a way as possible. And so I think the the like for for me it's like what's the cultural thing that like avoids us sort of grinding to a halt? And I like I've already experienced this uh, in just you know the three years building this company where if you like look away for a minute or if you start like treating it like a process problem it will very quickly start falling apart. And so I think to the extent that things are process problems, I think that we've missed a step, right? Like if it's if it's an individual accountability problem, that person will build the process they need to make sure things get done. And so I think what I found is like at Fafile and historically at other companies, the best way to sort of get rapid change is just like, make individuals responsible and like hold them accountable. And accountability is one of these beautiful things where it's not like people want ownership, right? like as engineers especially, right? Like, well, I, I really want to like own this thing and I want to be responsible for the decisions. But accountability is like the beautiful part of ownership in that like if you're accountable for an outcome, you by default have all the ownership necessary to to produce it, right? Like, but like if you're given ownership of something, you're not necessarily accountable for it. And it's this interesting sort of bifurcation of the like way we think about like if I if I say like I'm gonna give you ownership of this component. Okay. That's thank great. you, by the way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You have ownership <laughs> of this component. Yes. Um and and we need to we need to like ship it in three months. Wait, wait, wait. I thought you just told me I own this component, but you're telling me now that I need to ship it in three months. Well, hold on a second. What if I, yeah. <laughs> I I'd cut scope, right? right. <laughs> but now now you're like now, now there's a question about like how much you actually own. So yeah. you know, it's like, okay, well, you don't own the timeline. But then you start building and it's like, well, you know, somewhere along there, you get feedback from someone maybe outside of your org or higher up. They're like, hey, I really don't think you should build the component this way. Well, like I have ownership of this component. So I like, 
there's now going to be some defensiveness around this. Like now, now I need to like, now, now there's going to be like some contention around there. And like ownership is oftentimes starts, starts emerging that way where people just like want to like have these special things that they own and feel like are theirs. But I, so I don't give out ownership. I give out accountability. It's like, oh, you, you like the best way to get responsible for something is to just take accountability for it and get it done. And then from there, right, the feedback cycle actually starts emerging very differently. Hey, you're accountable for shipping this thing by this date. Now, feedback, trade-offs, everything's there in service of what I've like what the sort of measure of judgment is for the individual. And and then you can like lose your job over not doing these things. So like take your take your accountability seriously as no longer this sort of like protected area of building that you just own. It's you have an objective in the business you have to you have to deliver. Yeah, there's a guy, uh, Adam Barrett. Uh, he's going to kill me from ruining his last name. But he's, he's coming <laughs> yeah, over Adam. here. And, <laughs> he's coming to the house in, in a couple months. But yeah. he's been on the show before. He wrote a book about, he did a lot of work popularly with uh, reliability engineering inside of manufacturing. Yeah. And when I talked to him the first couple times, he was saying virtually exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Like if it, when you're shipping physical product, is I thought it was pretty cool for him to come teach us the difference between like building a heart monitor and then like releasing that because you build the hardware right, from right. nothing and then you put it out into the world. So there's a whole different set of, yeah. of design. And uh, when you're doing that, the timelines matter even more. Right, right. Because yeah. software, you can kind of push stuff and you can wiggle a little bit mm -hmm. differently. But when it's hardware and it's shipping to stores yeah. and, and vendors and stuff. So he was describing exactly what you said. So that, there's some some external proof for what you're saying. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, we've all. What's what's really interesting is like you take the variables away, and everybody everybody like knows these things on first principles, right? Like you and I are like experienced engineers. I ask you to build something, you can like immediately see all the parts in your head, and you can go do it. But like some, and you can like make all the decisions necessary to get it done. But somehow you start adding team and adding process to that. Like people stop using those skills as much. Because like, they're like, well, hey, this component, they said it was going to take an extra two weeks. And you're like, but why, right? If you're going to unpack that, like you, you would never have made that decision. But somewhere along the way, right, we start like letting these areas just like devolve, right, to maybe the decision was right, but it wasn't right for the outcome. And I think the, the ability to scale a team and keep that individual accountability, like make you make the team decision just the same way you would make it for yourself and not let anybody make excuses sort of down the chain. It, it, ha it's magical and it's not, it's, it's not micromanaging because like, you're not, you're not making the decisions, but you're holding people accountable to the outcome that you think is right. And there's this element of, of respect that, that, that has that you don't get out of like traditional sort of management processes. It says, hey, I know I could do this really well. And I also know, and I expect you to do it at least as well. And oh, I'm not going to accept anything less. And if you like, and this is for like, I think every engineer who's ever become a manager, right? Like you, you go have drinks with them later. Like, oh man, I can't believe it's like taking us so long to do this. I like, if you just like gave it to me, I would have just gotten it done in a week, right? Like, I like, this is like the like most common refrain. Ever, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, but like, that's, that is a problem. We allow that to get pervasive, right? Like the people who are leading sometimes are not empowered to like make really tough decisions on their team about like how to get it done. They like literally are sitting there like laughing about, or like, 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 and we've all been there, right? We're laughing about the fact that like, we can't do anything. Our like hands are tied. Like this is going to take us three months and it could have just taken us three days. Right. And I think it's like empower, empowering the, the leaders to like, keep operating the way they are when they're individuals as a larger org 
is hopefully the solution here. One of the things I found, so I'm going to check this with yeah. you. Yeah. I used to get really frustrated that some of this wasn't happening as well as I'd hope it would. Yeah. Um, and then I, I realized, I don't know who I heard. I heard somebody, but the bottom line was I realized that I needed to be continuously vocal about how the behaviors that like I wanted to see happen. Yeah. Because by default, like I will just go do things. Yeah. But other people, you know, because I'm the CEO and the founder and everything, yeah. other people are like scared or hesitant. They're working for someone, you know, type deal. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm constantly telling people like, hey, you know, I ask ask for forgiveness go figure it out. Yeah. And if I, you know, go charge towards this objective, yeah. Yeah. here's the outcome I want. You, yeah. you can figure out how to get there the best way you can. And if along the way I see you doing something that I think is unacceptable, yeah. I'll, I'll help correct you, but I'm not going to hold your hand through the whole thing. Yeah. We have this rule uh, at Flatfell called like plan lightly. And it's basically says like, for the most part, planning a lot is hubris. Because it implies you think that you can figure everything out before you get started building, right? And so when I see like plans taking more than a week to build for pretty much any area in the business, it starts looking like a bug, right? So it's like, hey, like what could we build that sort of like get, get, get iterating towards this outcome? Don't spend too much time trying to get it right before you start going. And, and there's, if, this is actually really important to enforce because there's an artifact of doing something that you planned for a long time. That is when you get to the end of building that first version, you are really closed to feedback, right? You will literally hear people say the time to give feedback was before we started building this, you know, when we were in the planning stage. And like, no, like build your first version in a way where you could throw it out every single time. Like get moving. I love because, this guy. <laughs> I love this because, guy. Because it, it's culturally critical to be willing to accept feedback on something you've done, right? That PR you put up, if you're not willing to like delete that PR and start over again, you spent too much time on it, right? Like, so when that senior engineer comes in, it's like, oh my God, like you did this with this particular way, but like if you do it this other way, it's gonna be so much better. That shouldn't feel like an insurmountable point of feedback. There shouldn't be this like, oh man, I just spent a week building this thing and now you're gonna make me go back to the drawing board on it. And so it's interesting that like the amount of time you give people to do that first version actually affects culture very meaningfully. And it is so critical to like get that first version and get everybody feeling that first version can be a throwaway if necessary. I love the feeling of, of when new team members started to realize that this is how it operates. Like at, <laughs> at our company, they'll be like, oh, so we just do it like that. Because I, the phrase I use is I should be able to, well, when I was doing software, it's like I should be able to drop dead and it should all, there should always be a, a, a version that's working that's really close behind it. Right, right. You know? Finding people who are high energy and pe finding people who are like really skilled and then finding people who just like want to build is like what I'm what I'm about here, and that's what the culture is at Flatfile is like ridiculously high energy, and we have so much fun just building stuff. Where did this come from? Did this come from you watching your dad's business operate? What's this? Like this energy, this Yo. this uh, attitude. I I think that sort of founders have to be to some extent idiotically audacious, and I just generally have a high level of confidence that I can solve problems. Um, and that leads to trying. Um, and so I think that's what I've done since I've been young, where I was like, I, I wanted to build a website. I didn't know how, but I was like, I'm sure I can do it. I think that does come very much from like the reinforcements I you know, got young, where it's just like, hey, or my dad is like a, a hardliner. He'd just be like, hey, go do this. And like- You'd have to figure it out. I, I'd figure it out, right? Yeah. And you know, sometimes that's tough. Um, but I think like at the end of the day, you start really believing that you can, right? After, after you like, 
go, like successfully do something that you weren't sure you could do a couple of times, you start really leaning into it. And I think that audaciousness is is important in children for sure to help them grow and learn. But um, I, was, oh, I was reading this book recently. I can't remember the, uh, or this quote recently from a book. It's just like the, we lose, like the, the, the more we lose that sort of like inner child, that curiosity, that sort of like willingness to experiment and break things, this just like the more we grow up, but growing up is sort of this like implicit slowing down of growth and learning and innovation. I think like the, the features of childhood, right, are like bravery and like audaciousness. And I think those features, like if you can bring them over into sort of adulthood and into your career, they can take you a long way. Like if you can learn as fast as a five-year-old, like you'll never stop learning. Yeah, I can. The way <laughs> you get that is by doing difficult things, and that builds character. Yeah, I like it. All right, so I think we're good. I think we did everything. Man, Sweet man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? We did. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.